Jerusalem. Israeli Prime Minister Levi Eshkol must be the proudest man in the world, especially when he entered into the Jordanian sector of Jerusalem and to stand before the Wailing Wall. To world jury, a deeply emotional occasion of great historic importance. Hero today of the Jewish peoples, General Moshe Dayan, defense minister and architect of the swiftest, most overwhelming victory of all time. The whole world hopes that from great victory and utter defeat, wisdom will emerge and bring lasting peace to this part of the world. In six days of war, Israel tripled the size of its country. To its 2.7 million citizens, it added 1.2 million Palestinians now under its control. For the moment, its rivals were vanquished and the country had free reign to act. The Israeli journalist Gershom Gorenberg writes that, quote, Accidentally, Israel had acquired an empire, end quote. The country hadn't expected this to happen and had no serious plan in place for if it did. So the question was, well, now what? Just nine days after the war, on June 19, 1967, after a series of top-secret debates, Israel's security cabinet had an answer. It was fairly simple, bold, ambiguous, and totally incomplete, and we've been living with the dilemmas present in that decision ever since. Israel had captured five Arab territories in the war, from Egypt in the south, the Sinai Peninsula, and the Gaza Strip, from Jordan in the east, the West Bank, and East Jerusalem, and at the northern border with Syria and Lebanon, the Golan Heights. The security cabinet decided to give back the Sinai and the Golan in exchange for peace treaties with Egypt and Syria. Jerusalem it would keep, as we discussed last episode. And as for Gaza and the West Bank, their decision was to make no decision, because they couldn't decide. They opted to wait and see, and figured it might take a few years until things settled. In the case of the West Bank, it's been 56. The beginning of the occupation is a huge subject and difficult to tell simply and plainly. You often get one of two versions of which there is plenty of evidence for either. That Israel was an imperial aggressor bent on domination of the Palestinians, or Israel was stuck in occupation paradox and a genuine search for peace. But a better narrative might be that Israel was flailing about without any clear sense of what to do about the whole situation. From competing political agendas to inconsistent policies, excessive bureaucracy to uncertainty about how long it would all last, the indecisions at the top translated into chaos on the ground. The whole world was watching and the Arab states were still hostile. Prime Minister Levi Eshkol summed it up best when he asked, quote, Have you thought about how we can live with so many Arabs? End quote. Israel's leaders recognized right from the start the great dilemma that Israel has faced the last five decades. That it would be impossible to indefinitely occupy the Palestinians, yet equally impossible to incorporate them into Israel. And yet Israel was now, accidentally, responsible for figuring out how to do both and neither at the exact same time. And so we're off. The beginning of the occupation. I'm your host, Jason Harris, and welcome back. Could you I don't know. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. Well. 
It seems absurd to think of Israel as an empire, given that the country is roughly the size of New Jersey. But when you consider that it now controlled territory three times its own size and an Arab population about half its own size, that's pretty extraordinary. Israel had had various schemes in place for what to do if it ever took back the West Bank, but those had never been put in place, and certainly not on six days' notice. What was supposed to be a defensive war turned into a vast occupation which Israel was completely unprepared for. There were layers of challenges. During and after the war, Israel's top officials debated about how much land to keep and whether it should be kept for security reasons or the historic Jewish claim, and which justification to apply where. They debated how to manage the huge Palestinian population and to what extent people should be forcibly resettled, incorporated into Israel, or given some kind of independence. And they debated whether they could really trust the Arabs to make peace, and if not, then for how long to hang on to the territories and what kind of influence this would have on Israeli society. Some ministers thought Israel should hold on to the territories permanently. Others thought Israel should just keep a few pieces for security purposes and give the rest back. And then there were the practical problems. How to harmonize different territories with different people, each one ruled by different commanders and politicians. What might work in one place wouldn't necessarily work in another. How do you quickly replace different Arab systems of government with the Israeli one, before you've made any decisions about what to do with these territories and the people? And then there was the question of time. Israel's government was operating on the assumption which we now know was wrong that its occupation was only temporary. Perhaps a few weeks or months, certainly not more than a few years, there was the expectation that the international community, led by the United States, would force Israel to give back the territories it captured. And anyway, it would only be a matter of time before the Arab states made peace treaties with Israel to get back those areas and the Arabs living there. But not every politician felt this way. Some thought that the Arabs would never make peace. Others were willing to give back some territories, but not others. So how do you manage an occupation that might only be temporary, but you're not sure for how long? There's a huge difference between governing someplace for a couple of months versus years or decades. And so on June 19th, just nine days after the war ended, Israel set down a marker with its security cabinet decision, which passed by only one vote to offer up the Sinai and the Golan to Egypt and Syria in exchange for peace treaties, to keep the eastern portion of Jerusalem as part of a united capital city, and punting on Gaza and the West Bank because the 19 ministers in the security cabinet couldn't agree on what to do. And there are two ways to reading this decision. Perhaps the vote was just a signal to the United States to lay off pressuring Israel to return all the territories that Israel had no intention of really fulfilling, or perhaps it really was a genuine offer to the Arabs that Israel had every intention of keeping. Sinai and the Golan Heights seemed to be the easiest decision. Land for peace. That made sense. The Sinai was a huge area difficult to defend, so worth giving up in exchange for peace. And although the Golan Heights was a strategic platform that Syria used to attack Israel, that would be mitigated if there was peace between the two countries. Neither territory had particularly large populations. But when it came to Gaza and the West Bank, Israel's politicians couldn't agree on a decision. It was a mixture of strategic land, Jewish historic land, and a massive Arab population. A needle too difficult to elegantly thread.
Israel's leaders may have had particular attachment to the land itself, but the biggest problem was what to do with the people in it. Yaakov Lozowick is the former Israeli state archivist and wrote a series of articles about these secret security cabinet meetings, the notes from which were only declassified a few years ago. Lozowick quotes Menachem Begin, the hardline leader of the right wing, who saw the West Bank as part of the historic Jewish homeland, the location of most of Judaism's holiest places. Begin used a Latin phrase, meaning, the fatherland is beyond commerce. That is, it's not something to be traded. Begin and his like-minded ministers thought there was a moral imperative here. Israel did not have the moral right to give up any inch of historic Jewish territory, not when it had been redeemed into Jewish hands after millennia. After all, he pointed out, it was Israel that had been attacked by Jordan, and Jordan itself had illegally occupied and then annexed the West Bank after 1948. It hardly made sense to give it back to King Hussein. As for the Gaza Strip, that wasn't really historic Jewish land, but it was highly strategic military territory. It ran up the Mediterranean coast towards Tel Aviv, offering an excellent launching point for attacking Israel, which Egypt had used liberally. And so if it's just a question of land, it seems straightforward to keep the Gaza Strip and the West Bank. But Israel's politicians well recognized that the hundreds of thousands of Arabs living there posed an intractable problem. And it was here that the seeds of a chaotic occupation were on display, as each politician had a different scheme for what to do with these two territories. All recognized, as Menachem Begin did, that the Arabs couldn't be given Israeli citizenship. They would soon constitute a majority of Israel's population, bringing an end to the Jewish state. Begin pointed out that, quote, the Arabs on the West Bank have spent 19 years being taught to hate us, end quote. Hardly a promising beginning, then, for a united country. Begin instead wanted to give the Palestinians of the West Bank basic residency rights for seven years, during which time Israel would massively increase its Jewish population through immigration and a rising birth rate. Then the Palestinians would be offered either Israeli citizenship or the opportunity to move somewhere else. Begin pointed out that even if most Palestinians chose citizenship, they would at that point still constitute a significant minority population, too small to threaten the country's Jewish majority. Israel's 2.7 million citizens at that point included only a couple hundred thousand Arabs. As for the Arabs in Gaza, Begin insisted that they would have to be moved out. So that's one idea, but there were plenty others. Yigal Alon was another hawk, but on the left instead of the right. He was a celebrated military leader who earned his fame in the War of Independence and was now serving as a minister of labor. He agreed with Begin that Israel should not return land in either the West Bank or Gaza to Egypt or Jordan. He estimated that there were around 350,000 Arabs in Gaza. Alon advocated a humanitarian project to settle them elsewhere starting with the northern Sinai Peninsula next door, which Israel was planning to return to Egypt. As for the West Bank, Alon thought that Israel would need to keep some of it for security purposes, but the rest of it should be set up as an autonomous region for the Palestinians. Not quite an independent state, but still separate from Jordan, with Israel taking the land in between the two to ensure its security. But here's the question. Why not just sidestep this whole occupation by giving the Palestinians an independent state? Wouldn't that solve the problem that has bedeviled Israel ever since?
an independent Palestinian state. Incredibly, Israel's leaders thought of that right from the beginning and rejected it. Why? The Israeli journalist Gershom Gorenberg writes that the answer is colonialism. This argument around colonialism, so much a part of the discourse around the occupation today, was very much on the Israelis' minds right from the get-go. Israel didn't want to be seen as colonizers. Gorenberg quotes from an internal government memo that worried that if Israel were to set up an independent Palestinian state, it, quote, would be regarded in the world as an Israeli puppet, end quote. On the other hand, if they didn't set up an independent something for the Palestinians, that too would be construed as colonialism. And remember, this is taking place in the 1960s, high season for the establishment of independent former colonies all over the world. In those secret cabinet meetings, the Israeli former state archivist Yaakov Lozowik quotes the sentiments of the Minister of Justice, Yaakov Shimshon Shapira, Shapira said, quote, The world is going through decolonization, and we're accused unfairly of being colonial, and we're considering ruling territories inhabited mainly by Arabs while keeping security and foreign affairs in our hands, like the sheikhs of the Persian Gulf. Who will accept that? Who will we convince? Everyone will say we're constructing a colony in the West Bank. End quote. If Israel was not willing to absorb all these Palestinians as citizens, then the only way to prevent the charge of colonialism was to give the land back to an Arab country, not the Palestinians themselves. Moshe Dayan, the black eyepatch-wearing war hero minister of defense, he wanted to set up a kind of Palestinian representative government to work directly with Israel, a council of representatives like mayors and administrators who will help Israel run things as proxies. This would ensure a benign occupation that would neither burden the occupier nor the occupied with any degree of repression. In his vision, a Palestinian living under Israel's occupation would go from birth to death without ever needing to actually encounter an Israeli government official. So, we have Menachem Begin's plan to keep the whole West Bank. We have Yigal Alon's plan to carve it up, some parts to Israel, some parts to the Palestinians. We have a plan to keep the Gaza Strip, but perhaps force the Arabs there to settle somewhere else. We have ideas for an independent Palestinian state in the West Bank, or an autonomous but not independent Palestinian entity, or a Palestinian quasi-government that will sort of be a part of Israel. We have ideas to accept some Palestinians into Israel as residents, other ideas to accept them as citizens, but not until several years down the road. We have forcing some Palestinians to resettle in Arab countries, or else having them stay put but live under Jordanian control. And on and on these permutations went, with no majority opinion holding sway. As Yaakov Lozowik, the former state archivist, writes, quote, It never crossed their minds that they were forging a conundrum that would remain unsolved for generations. End quote. The journalist Gershom Gorenberg writes that, quote, Failing an agreement with Jordan, therefore, Israel should keep all possibilities open. That meant avoiding decisions and maintaining military rule indefinitely. Postponement became policy. End quote. But of course, you can't just sit there in limbo. These territories have to be managed, the population has to be controlled, governed, administered. And in the absence of any clear plan, Israel stumbled along, throwing darts at the board to see what would stick and what wouldn't. This was no organized colonial conquest.
As Israel groped its way around trying to get a handle on what to do, one of the early linchpins of the occupation was what became known as the Open Bridges policy. Depending on the account, it was either masterminded by Minister of Defense Moshe Dayan, or at least very enthusiastically adopted by him. Where many of Israel's ministers had staked out clear positions on the occupation, Moshe Dayan was all over the place. He had a lot of ideas and a lot of opinions, and sometimes they changed depending on the day. But as Minister of Defense for what was now a vast military occupation, he was the man in charge. Diane's big idea was an economic union between Israel and its occupied people. The Israeli historian and Diane biographer Shabbatai Teveth writes that, quote, In Diane's view, the two nations in the area formerly called Palestine could function within a single economy, even though they belonged to different cultures and sovereign states. The basic principle in his approach was neighborliness, or in his phrase, a joint way of life, end quote. Moshe Dayan imagined a scenario in which the Jews and Arabs in the West Bank would be fully integrated into the same economy, but would be citizens of two separate countries, one Israel, the other some kind of Arab state, or perhaps Jordan. So even if they lived in neighborhoods right next to each other, they would vote for different governments and have different civil rights. But in this way, Israel wouldn't be cut off from the wider Middle East, but a part of it. Dayan thought that Israelis and Arabs would learn to live together as neighbors, building the kinds of interdependent relationships that would eventually foster peace. This idea was manifested in the Open Bridges policy. Under Diane's orders, the bridges across the Jordan River, which connected the Kingdom of Jordan with the West Bank, were declared open for the free movements of goods, services, money, and people. Before the war, of course, the West Bank had been closed off to Israel. But with the bridges open, Israel could connect to the wider Middle East through the West Bank the Palestinians could access the Israeli market, and Arabs from Gaza and the West Bank could move to and fro without permits. The result was an economic boom, a huge one. The West Bank benefited from huge Israeli investments in local agriculture and light industry, supplying modern equipment, factories, and transportation. And Israel benefited from a huge influx of Arab laborers coming to work in Israel. Israel's Arabs benefited from being able to unite with their fellow Arabs, oftentimes relatives, across boundaries that had once been hard borders. And the Palestinians of the West Bank had free reign to come into Israel, which they often saw as far more open, free, and prosperous than the repressive Arab regimes they were living under. Maybe these Zionists weren't so awful after all. Open bridges made it seem like Israel had cracked the code of how to have an enlightened, even beneficial occupation. But it wasn't going to be that easy. The historian Tom Segev writes that open bridges was a manifestation of Israeli power, since it was Israel that could close the bridges anytime it wanted. It made Israel look good to the world, and he writes, quote, The direct and straightforward contact between the territories and the Arab world nurtured the hope that the occupation would facilitate a reality of peace and strengthened the illusion that there was no need to rush to find a political settlement, end quote. The more that Israel's economy was integrated with the occupied territories, the harder it would be to unravel later on. Rather than being a temporary solution to an economic issue, open bridges encouraged a prolonged, indefinite, even permanent Israeli occupation. And no one wants to be permanently occupied.
While Moshe Dayan's open bridges policy was opening up the West Bank and integrating the Palestinians there with Israeli society, over in the Gaza Strip, Israel didn't have a clue what to do with the Arabs. Gaza was considered essential for Israel's security, and thus the majority of its Arab population would have to go. But go where? And how to get them out without an outright ethnic cleansing while the whole world was watching? And here we find some of the chaos of the occupation, as Prime Minister Levi Eshkol was presented with all sorts of schemes, agreeing to all of them and none of them at the same time. It seems his most repeated answer to any question was, I don't know. There was a plan to pay Arabs to leave, by person or by household or by family, and that worked for a bit until people realized they could just demand more and more money from a desperate Israel. Too expensive, so that policy failed. And then there was the plan to just make living in Gaza so miserable that people would leave on their own. Not by violence, but by a lack of services, by an inefficient and nonsensical bureaucracy that just made daily existence exhausting. That worked in some cases, too. It's hard to say how many of Gaza's 350 or 400,000 residents ended up leaving through these kinds of schemes. Tens of thousands, but not enough. Tom Segev writes that, ultimately, quote, The working assumption was that the IDF would remain in the territories for a prolonged period. The military government's purpose was to restore civilian life to normal as quickly as possible. End quote. But each of the five captured territories had its own separate administration, divided and overlapped between military and civilian rule. Segev describes this, quote, emerging occupation apparatus as improvised, rushed, secretive, wasteful, grounded in government decisions and an endless series of injunctions, ordinances, and regulations, end quote. It was, he says, an endless labyrinth of headquarters with no clear policy or strategy, but rather ruled by arbitrariness. After all, the government hadn't decided on open bridges as a matter of caref carefully thought through policy, but instead as a potential solution to a temporary economic bottleneck. You could be a Palestinian living here and find a well-paying job in Israel and be a Palestinian right over here and have your neighborhood marked for potential resettlement. You might find yourself with a permit from this military department, but a denial from another. And of course you had no say. The various ideas about establishing some kind of Palestinian autonomy or representative politics never materialized, in part because the Palestinians themselves could never agree on who to put in charge of such things. They had never had their own government. They had had the Kingdom of Jordan, and now that was gone. The root of the problem was the indecision at the top. Sure, Israel's security cabinet had voted in favor of this partial plan right after the war, to trade land for peace but otherwise wait and see when it came to the West Bank and the Arabs of Gaza. But the Prime Minister, Levi Eshkol, acknowledged that the cabinet was essentially just talking to itself, and maybe the United States. They could decide whatever they wanted, but the Arab states would also obviously have to agree and so far there was silence. In a few months, that silence would become outright rejection. But for the moment, Israel had no choice but to hang on to these territories. But Levi Eshkol could not make decisions about what he wanted. And in the absence of firm decisions, strategies, and plans, matters were left up to people who seized decision-making authority, whether they worked for the government or not. And some of them jumped into the vacuum to do what the Zionist movement had always been about in the historic Jewish homeland. Building settlements. The first one came five weeks after the war ended.
So we've got here the theoretical framework for the occupation. Israel could not indefinitely rule the Palestinians, but it couldn't make them citizens and hope to keep a Jewish majority for a Jewish state. It couldn't control the Palestinians without being accused of colonialism, but it also couldn't give them autonomy or independence without also being accused of the same. The Arab states weren't talking to Israel, and the one person who was, King Hussein of Jordan, wasn't prepared to act alone, so Israel couldn't give the West Bank and its Palestinians back to him. And even if it could, the West Bank was now redeemed historic Jewish land, paid for in Jewish blood, in a war that Israel didn't start. Both the left and the right each had their reasons for jumping in to settle it. What is today an impossible situation also began that way. So indecision at the top was one reason for the occupation's chaotic beginnings. Another was the start of an extraordinary and ambitious project by private individuals with support from various elements of the Israeli government, building Jewish settlements on this newly acquired historic Jewish land. And we'll get into that next episode. As always, I'm at jewidontknow.com and jewidontknowpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, everyone. Lahitra out. See you later. Thank you.